Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I am reading to you the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, July the 20th, July the 20th. 2023. We start with the weather. Today, high of 80, humid with times of clouds and sun. Tonight, low of 68, cloudy and humid, a couple of showers late. Tomorrow, Friday, high of 77, low of 70, mostly cloudy, a shower and a thunderstorm, humid. Saturday, high of 82, low of 67, Humid, a thunderstorm around in the morning. Sunday, high of 83, low of 66, mostly sunny and humid. And Monday, high of 83, low of 69, humid with sun and area of high areas of high clouds. And today, the sun rose at 524 and it will set at 811. That's 14 hours and 47 minutes of daylight. And now we turn to the lottery numbers. For the numbers game, drawn Wednesday, July the 19th, yesterday, the midday drawing was 9601. Again, numbers game, yesterday drawing, midday, 9601. And the evening drawing, 355. Five, six. Again, for the numbers game, the evening drawing, 3556. Five, for the Powerball, drawn on Wednesday, July the 19th, the numbers are 7, 10, 11, 13, 24, and the Powerball is 24. Again, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, July the 19th, for Powerball. The numbers are 7, 10, 11, 13, 24, and the Powerball is 24. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, July the 18th, the numbers are 19, 22, 31, 37, 54, and the Mega Ball is 18. Again, Mega Millions drawn Tuesday, July the 18th. The numbers are 19, 21, excuse me, 19, 22, 31, 37, 58, and the Mega Ball is 18. For Mega Bucks Doubler drawn yesterday, July the 19th, the numbers are 1, 13, 15, 18, 31, 47, and the doubler ball is 6. Again, for Megabucks doubler, drawn Wednesday, July the 19th, the numbers are 1, 13, 15, 18, 31, 47, with the mega ball of 6. And finally, Lucky for Life, drawn Wednesday, July 19th, the numbers are 12, 16, 28, 32, 45, and the lucky ball is 1. 
Again, lucky for life, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, July the 19th. The numbers are 12, 16, 28, 32, 45, and the lucky ball is 1. And now to our front page stories. The top one is entitled, A Low Road, A Dam, and a Culvert. Two Cape Towns Get Resiliency Grants. This is reported by Heather McCarran for the Cape Cod Times. Driving along Menahant Road on the south coast of Falmouth, it's not a far stretch of the imagination to fancy peeling back a few layers of asphalt to find an extension of the beach, a beach just waiting for someone to kick off their flip-flops, spread out a blanket, and settle in for a day of sun and waves. Traversing several stretches of barrier beach that separate estuaries from Nantucket Sound, the roadway exists defiantly at one of the spots on the Cape most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, flooding from battering storms and sea level rise. It's one of 21 susceptible areas across the state, tagged for a share of $5.6 million in design and permitting or construction grants, the Massachusetts Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs announced this week as part of its Dam and Seawall Repair or Removal Grant program. The funding will help several towns and a pair of nonprofits with much needed resiliency projects that either repair critical infrastructure or remove obsolete structures. Some money will go toward the beleaguered Red Brook Dam on the border between Mashpee and Falmouth. In places, Menahant Road is so close to the water you could call out a greeting to waiting beachgoers and expect a response. Section of the road are bordered by weather-worn concrete barriers. In other places, Brief lengths of sand fencing or guardrails are all that separate the road from the sand and water, where elsewhere there are vegetated low sand mounds. Falmouth is getting a two hundred and thirty eight nine hundred and seventy eight excuse me two hundred and thirty eight thousand nine hundred and seventy eight dollar million dollar design and permit grant that will be put towards its Menahant Road Public Safety and Coastal Resiliency Improvement Project, aimed at addressing the low-lying road's resiliency issues. According to documents available on the town website, portions of the road are among the top five most vulnerable to flooding in that part of Falmouth and among the top ten town-wide. Water Street in Woods Hole claims the top spots. Town engineer Jim McLaughlin said a significant portion of Menahant Road, which connects several coastal neighborhoods with each other and the town center and serves as an important evacuation route, is constantly under siege by the elements. Repairs never seem to stay for very long, quote, because of the wave action and just the coastal erosion portions, close quote. The newly awarded grant, he, he said, will be used to investigate permanent solutions for the problem areas. Quote, the full fix is probably a year or two away, he said. Once we identify a solution and have a design, then we will need to go to town meeting for additional funding. Quote, close quote. Additional grant funding would help as well, he said. 
The town is also pursuing beach nourishment at the west end of Manahot Beach, along with the addition of beach-stabilizing rubble-mound groins, as well as widening of the Bournes Pond Inlet and bridge work there. About 20 minutes away, in Mashpee, as dusk approached on Tuesday, birds in pursuit of insects swooped low over the cattails and reeds that have taken over what was once a cranberry bog alongside Red Book Road. At one time, there was a pond on the Mashpee side, but now it's a basin filled with vegetation. The site has seen troubles in the last two decades, most recently in 2020, when the wooden dam that blocked a culvert under the road became so rotted that the pond slowly leaked out and down the stream that eventually empties into Hamblin Pond in Falmouth. On one day in July 2020, the pond's level shrank as much as two feet. Mashpee and Falmouth are getting a $127,500 grant to make improvements. Specifically, said Mashpee Public Works Director Catherine Laurent, the grant will fund design and permitting for removing the dam and replacing the culvert, a joint project between the two towns, with Mashpee as the lead town. The new culvert will comply with Massachusetts Stream Crossing Standard for improved fish passage, she said. With this project, the pound, the pond will be eliminated, leaving the stream, Redbrook, and ward, bordering wetland. Quote, the stream does have some tidal influence, so the project will also improve resiliency and address vulnerabilities expected from sea level rise, Lawrence said. She estimated the project may take up to 24 months because of the permitting required. Quote, the town's would then pursue funding grant opportunities for construction, Lawrence said. This week's grant awards come on the heels of a recent historic flooding in New England. In a statement issued Monday, the Healy-Driscoll administration highlighted the dam and seawall grant program, which started in 2013, as, quote, one of the many resources the administration is working to provide to communities to ensure their structures can adapt to climate impacts. Close quote. And then, quote, Last week, I saw firsthand the catastrophic flooding impacting many people's personal and professional lives, said Governor Maura Healey in that statement. As we continue to experience the impacts of climate change, it's critical to invest in programs like this that will enhance our safety and infrastructure. Close quote. Rebecca Tepper, Secretary of the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, agreed noting in the same statement, quote, seawalls, dams, and levees are some of the first structures to be impacted by changing climate, and some were never intended to withstand intense storms or rising sea levels. Through this program, communities can address aging infrastructure, protect public water supply, and prevent roadways, homes, and businesses from being damaged, she said. To date, the program has provided $120 million in grants and loans to address deficient dams, seawalls, and levees. And there's a comp an accompanying picture on the front page of a car driving over the road. And the um, caption is, 
A culvert drains water on Wednesday from a wetland along Redbrook Red Brook Road in Mashpee at the site where a $127,500 grant shared by Mashpee and Falmouth will remove a dirt dam and replace the culvert. State news on the front page of the Cape Cod Times. Utilities let Commonwealth Wind out of contracts for $48 million. Reported by Chris Lezinski for the State House News Service. Commonwealth Wind made a breakthrough in its long-running effort to back out of its offshore wind contracts. The developer behind the 120-megawatt project and a trio of Massachusetts utility companies struck a deal in which Commonwealth Wind will pay roughly $48 million to dissolve previous agreements the parties signed for the proposed clean wind energy. If the move wins approval from state regulators, as at least one top lawmaker expects, it would effectively wipe away the largest offshore wind development in the state's pipeline and clear the way for the project's developer, Avangrid, to rebid the project in hopes of securing a higher price amid what it has described as changing economic currents. Avangrid agreed to pay $25.9 million to Eversource, $21.6 million to National Grid, and $480,000 to Unitil to scrap power purchase agreements it reached last year with the utilities, according to the documents the parties filed with the Department of Public Utilities on Thursday. Those payments would be credited to each utility's customers, according to a letter summarizing the accord. The deal also calls on Commonwealth Wind to back down from a court challenge it filed against a DPU ruling in December last year that effectively rejected the developer's effort to back out of the contracts. Commonwealth Magazine first reported on Monday about the agreement between the development developer and utilities. Spokespeople for Avangrid and the DPU declined to comment Tuesday. The companies asked for DPU to approve the termination of power purchase agreements within 30 days, but the department does not face a formal deadline. Representative Jeff Roy, the House's point person on clean energy, said the state will now move forward with a clean slate in the fourth round of bidding for offshore wind projects, which will unfold in the coming months. Quote, I think the payment Commonwealth Wind are going to make is the maximum penalty that the contracts allow, and the fact that they're paying every cent of the maximum amount is sufficient to close this loop and move forward with round four, Roy said in an interview. Utility executives working with the Baker administration picked Commonwealth Wind in 2021 in the, th in the state's third round of solicitation for more offshore wind power. Since last fall, Avangrid has been arguing that changing economic circumstances, including supply chain upheaval and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, rendered the project impossible to finance under previously agreed-to terms. The company hopes that by scrapping its power purchase agreements with utilities, it can submit a new proposal in the upcoming solicitation round and win selection again at a more favorable price. 
it's a risky move because depending on how many bids come in from a relatively small pool of competitors, the state could pick other projects and drop Commonwealth Wind entirely. On the flip side, policymakers are under pressure to lock in clean energy development in Massachusetts as they work to achieve the statutory target of net zero emissions by 2050, and they might feel that there is not much of a choice. Massachusetts intends to secure 5,600 megawatts of offshore wind energy by 2027 under its clean energy law. Through the first three rounds of procurement, the state approved projects adding up to 3,200 megawatts, although the elimination of Commonwealth Wind takes 1,200 megawatts off the board. Even with this setback, we are confident that a robust offshore wind industry is taking root off the coast of Massachusetts. Maria Hardiman, a spokesperson for the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, said on Tuesday, quote, In May, we were proud to announce the largest offshore wind procurement in New England history. And we are committed to working with business leaders, communities, labor, and other leaders as we move forward. Another developer, South, Co South Coast Wind, has also signaled it wants to back out of its combined 1,200 megawatt contracts due to similar financial concerns, which would further slash the amount of capacity already in the Massachusetts pipeline. The Healy administration in May set its sights on procuring as much as 3,600 megawatts of wind energy capacity in the upcoming round. Under the draft request for proposals, developers would newly gain the opportunity to submit bids with an, quote, alternative index pricing proposal, close quote, to account for changing economic factors. The DPU is still reviewing the RFP, which would accept bids until January 31, 2024. DOER expects to publish more information about the indexed pricing idea in the fall, according to an official. Another story from the front page, Conditions Ripe for Infectious Diseases, reported by Zoya Tierstein for Grist in New York. People around the world are living longer, healthier lives than they were just a half century ago. Climate change threatens to undo that progress. Across the planet, animals and the diseases they carry are shifting to accommodate a globe on the fritz. And they're not alone. Ticks, mosquitoes, bacteria, algae, even fungi are on the move, shifting or expanding their historical ranges to adapt to climactic conditions that are evolving at an unprecedented pace. These changes are not happening in a vacuum. Deforestation, mining, agricultural, and urban sprawl are taking bites out of the globe's remaining wild areas, contributing to biodiversity loss that's occurring at a rate unprecedented in human history. Populations of species that humans rely on for sustenance are dwindling and getting pushed into ever smaller slices of habitat, creating new zoonotic disease hotspots. 
Meanwhile, the number of people experiencing extreme repercussions of a warming planet continues to grow. Climate change displaces some 20 million people every year. People who need housing, medical care, food, and other essentials that put strain on the already fragile systems that are growing ever more stressed. All of these factors create conditions ripe for human illness. Diseases old and new are becoming more prevalent and even cropping up in places they've never been found before. Researchers have been piecing together a patchwork of evidence that illuminates the formidable threat climate-driven diseases currently pose to human health and the scope of the dangers to come. Quote, this is not just something off in the future, Neil Vora, a physician with the nonprofit Conservation America International, said. Climate change is here. People are suffering and dying right now, close quote. Research shows that climate change influences the spread of, of disease in a few major ways. To escape rising temperatures in their native ranges, animals are beginning to move to higher, cooler elevations, bringing diseases with them. That poses a threat to people living in those areas, and it also leads to dangerous intermingling between animal newcomers and existing species. Bird flu, for example, has been spreading with greater ease among wild animals as rising seas and other factors push nesting bird species inland, where they're more likely to run into other species. Diseases that jump between species tend to have an easier time eventually making the leap to humans. Warmer winters and milder autumns and springs allow carriers of pathogens, ticks, mosquitoes, and fleas, for example, to remain active for longer swaths of the year. Expanded active periods means busier mating seasons and fewer casualties over the cold winter months. <clears throat> the northeastern United States has seen a massive proliferation of Lyme disease-carrying black-legged ticks over the past decade, with warmer winters playing a decisive role in that trend. Erratic weather patterns, such as periods of extreme drought and flooding, create conditions for diseases to spread. Cholera, a waterborne bacteria, thrives during the monsoon season in South Asian countries when flooding contaminates drinking water, especially in places that lacked quality sanitation infrastructure. Valley fever, a fungal-borne pathogen that grows in the soil in the western U.S., flourishes during periods of rain. The severe drought that tends to follow rain in that part of the world shrivels the fungal spores, which allows them to more easily disperse into the air at the slightest disturbance, a hiker's boot, say, or a garden rake, and find their way into the human respiratory system. These climate-driven impacts are taking a serious toll on human health. Cases of disease linked to mosquitoes, teas, and flick and fleas. Mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas tripled in the U.S. between 2004 and 2016, according to the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control. The threat extends beyond commonly recognized vector-borne diseases. 
Research shows more than half of all the pathogens known to cause disease in humans can be made worse by climate change. The problem compounds as time goes on. The World Health Organization estimates that between 2030 and 2050, just a handful of climate-related threats, such as malaria and water insecure, will claim insecurity, will claim a quarter of a million additional lives each year. Quote, I think we've drastically underestimated not only how much climate change is already changing disease risks, but just how many kinds of risks are changing, said Colin Carlson, a global change biology at Georgetown University. He noted that while connecting the dots between tick-borne illnesses and climate change, for example, is a relatively straightforward scientific endeavor, the scientific community and the general public need to be aware that the impacts of global warming on disease can also manifest in many other, less obvious ways. The COVID-19 pandemic is an example of how quickly disease can move through global populations and how deeply complicated the public health response to such threats can get. Quote, I think there's a lot more to worry about in terms of epidemic and pandemic threats, he said. The world has the tools it needs. Wildlife surveillance networks, vaccines, early warning systems, to mitigate the impacts of climate-driven disease. Some of these tools have already been deployed on a local scale to a great effect. What remains to be seen is how quickly governments, NGOs, medical providers, doctors, and the public can work across borders to develop and deploy a global plan of action. More local news. This article is entitled, Born Custodian Says Town Employee Illegally Recorded Private Meeting, recorded uh, and reported by Rachel Devaney for the Cape Cod Times. Editor's note, this sto story was edited on July 19, 2023, to correct references to the Born Town Attorney and the Born Police Chief. <clears throat> Bourne Town officials are investigating a claim by a municipal custodian that he saw the Human Resources Director recording a conversation between two other town officials in Town Hall. In February, custodian Matthew Rose said he was collecting trash and found Human Resources Director Elise Zarcaro sitting in the dark in Assistant Administrator's Lisa Hartsgrove's office. Rose contends that Zarkaro was using her cell phone to record a conversation between the town administrator, Marlene McCollum, and former Board of Health Chair, Stanley Andrews. Quote, she was sitting in the assistant town administrator's chair, wheeled away from her desk with her phone next to the door, said Rose. She turned towards me, waved her arms to tell me not to collect trash, and put her finger up to her lips to tell me to be quiet, close quote. In a, brief, in a brief telephone interview with the Times on Wednesday, Zarkaro said no such recording exists. Asked why she was sitting in, the Hearts, in Hartsgrove's office in the dark, Zarkaro said she, quote, was just doing my job. She declined to discuss Rose's allegations further. 
Bourne Chief of Police Brandon Esip confirmed with the Times on Tuesday that Bourne Police have opened an investigation into Rose's allegations. The following day, Rose said he was with Zarcaro and Maria Simone, an administrative assistant, and made a joke out about almost blowing Zarcaro's sting operation. Quote, they laughed, and Maria said that she meant to tell me to not go into the assistant townman administrator's office, said Rose. Rose reported the incident to Sean Patterson, director of the Bourne Department of Public Works. Patterson, in turn, told Peter Meyer, then select board chair. Meyer acknowledged that Rose submitted his complaint to the select board, and the statement was forwarded to town council Brian Bertram. Quote, I thought the proper step for me was to go to the town council because the town administrator, McCollum, reports to the town council, said Meyer over the phone. Quote, I was looking for direction from town council so I could best protect the town's interests. Close quote. McCollum declined comment to the Times about the incident, but said the Bourne Police Department opened an investigation into Rose's accusation. Quote, once the report is available and I've had a chance to review it, I will be happy to schedule a call, said McCollum to the Times in an email. Bertram didn't immediately return calls and emails to the, to the Times. ESIP confirmed that police opened an investigation. Police, he said, found no probable cause that any member of the town administrator's office or the human resources director illegally or otherwise, recorded the private meeting discussed by Rose. Quote, I will hold off on discussing more until the final report is available, but will caution that if the information you received from Mr. Rose was that he definitely observed a legal recording of a meeting, that is not necessarily the same certainty he relayed to our investigator, said Esip in an email. Esop said a full report on the investigation will be completed by the police this week. Andrews resigned from the Board of Health February 22nd, according to a letter of resignation that was forwarded to the Times by the Town Health Department. After hearing about Andrews' resignation, Rose said he suspected that there was an organized effort by McCollum and Zarcaro to breach Andrews' privacy. Quote, I don't know what reason there would be to spy on this meeting, but as employees we should all be able to come to work and expect that our administration and human resources department will act ethically and within the par parameters of the law, said Rose. On April 5th, accompanied by a union representative, Rose said he was interviewed by Hartsgrove about the February incident. Rose said she told him that town administrators were unhappy that he was, quote, spreading rumors. Before the meeting ended, Hartsgrove said what Rose saw didn't align with the culture and vision Bourne Town Administration is working to implement. Hartsgrove didn't return emails sent by the Times for comment. When Rose said he was interviewed by police, they suggested that just because Zarkara's phone was next to the door, it's possible she wasn't recording. Quote, I said it, that it's a definite possibility, but here she is, sitting in the dark, eavesdropping at the very least, he said. 
and your human resources director shouldn't be doing that, and your town administrator shouldn't be telling her to do that. Close quote. Rose is currently on leave from his position. Quote, I've been lied to and backstabbed so many times, and work has become uncomfortable, said Rose. Rose said he can't get a clear answer from town officials about next step. Quote, doing the wrong thing for the right reasons is still the wrong thing to do, said Rose in a prepared statement shared with the Times. Respectfully, I request some closure on this matter. Close quote. And here's a lovely picture I'd like to share. It's of one sunflower in close focus with a bee on it, while there's a person behind in a huge field of sunflowers. And the caption reads, A bee goes about its work on Wednesday, undeterred by Jessica Stockton wading through a sea of sunflowers, harvesting harvesting them at Tony Andrews' farm in Falmouth, where pick-your-own-sunflowers are now in full bloom. We're about at the middle of the broadcast, and we have six obituaries to share today. The first is for Francis J. Swift McPherson from Lynn. Francis J. Swift McPherson, age 82, of Lynn, passed away peacefully on Saturday, July 15th, at Sunrise Assisted Living in Linfield, surrounded by her family after a brief illness. She was the wife of the late Melbourne P. Mel McPherson, who predeceased her this past February. Born in Hyannis and raised in Osterville, she was the daughter of the late Ernest and Amelia Zykowski Smith, Swift. She was a graduate of Barnstable High School and the New England Deaconess Hospital School of Nursing. She had lived in Lynn for the past 60 years. Frances has wor- had worked as a registered nurse in Lynn Hospital and Salem Hospital in the nursery, caring for newborns and their families. She also worked as a pediatric home care nurse. She loved reading, watching Western movies, and watching her favorite baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. She and her husband enjoyed traveling throughout the United States, as well as trips to the casinos. She loved spending time with her family, especially her three grandchildren. For the past four months, she had been making new friends and enjoying her new home at Sunrise in Linfield. She is survived by her two daughters, Karen Junkin and her husband John of Reading, and Kim Stanness and her husband Andrew of Saugus. Her three grandchildren, Christopher Junkin and his wife Molly of Pembroke, New Hampshire, Timothy Junkin, uh, Jankin of Reading, and Tiffany Stamness of Saugus. Her brother, John P. Swift of Center Harbor, New Hampshire, as well as several nieces and nephews. She was the sister of the late Joseph Peter Swift and Robert Thomas Smith. At the request of her family, her services will be private. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Sunrise of Linfield, 55 Salem Street, Linfield, Massachusetts, 01940, or All Care Hospice, 210 Market Street, Lynn, Massachusetts, 01901. Arrangements by the Solomine Funeral Home, Lynn. Directions and guest book at www.solomine.com. And that's spelled S-O-L-I-M-I-N-E.
Our next obituary is for Nancy E. Pellegrini, South Yarmouth. Nancy E. Wyand Pellegrini, 76, of South Yarmouth, passed away peacefully on Saturday, July 8, 2023, at the Pavilion Rehab and Nursing Center in Hyannis. She is predeceased by her husband, Dennis J. Pellegrini. They had been married for 50 years. Born, raised, and educated in Boston, she was the daughter of the late Harrington and Francis Mitch Wyand. Nancy and Dennis were longtime residents of Framingham, and in 1998 they retired to South Yarmouth. Nancy was a volunteer at a thrift store on 6A where the proceeds went to support cancer survivors. She herself was a cancer survivor and was very honored to help others through her volunteering. An avid crafter and antique hunter, she loved visiting the many boutiques and gift shops of the Cape. Nancy had a keen eye for decorating and had a deep love of the Christmas season and decorating for it. Any trip out would always include lunch, often at Holly's Deli, enjoyed with her dear friend Barbara. Nancy is predeceased by her two sisters, Carolyn Sullivan and Miriam McLaughlin. Nancy is survived by her two sisters-in-law, Elaine Whiting and Antoinette Moody of Florida. Her niece and nes- her niece's niece, excuse me, her nephews and nieces and cousins, and her most loyal companion Daisy, who was always by her side. Her family would like to express their gratitude to the doctors, nurses, and other caregivers at the Cape Cod Hospital and the Pavilion Rehab Center and VNA Hospice for the loving support and professional care that was extended to her during her recent illness. Funeral services will be private. Our next obituary is for Mary Ann Labello Carcieri, East Falmouth. Mary Ann Labello Carcieri, 72, of East Falmouth, passed away on Sunday, July 16, 2023. Born in Cranston, Rhode Island, daughter of the late Clara Santanella and Ralph Labello. Originally a math teacher, she later became involved for 36 years with the Cape Cod Wholesale Nursery along with her husband, husband John. She especially loved spending time with her many beloved pet dogs and chatting with her many friends online. Marianne and husband John especially loved the Christmas season with a huge light display at their home at East Falmouth, across from St. Anthony's Church. For 50 years, she was the beloved wife of John A. Carcieri, also the loving mother of Jennifer Lynn Cohen of Staten Island, New York. Visitation will be held at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 475 Main Street, Falmouth, on Saturday, July 22nd, from 9 to 10 a.m. A funeral mass will be celebrated at St. Anthony's Church, 167 East Falmouth Highway, East Falmouth, on Saturday, July 22nd, at 11 a.m. Burial will follow at St. Anthony's Cemetery. We would also like to thank the many doctors, nurses, and aides at Dana-Farber, Brigham and Women's, and Hematology Oncology Specialists of Cape Cod 
who catered to her for over the last six-plus years. For online guestbook and directions, please visit chapmanfuneral.com. And Chapman Funeral is one word. This next obituary is for Sam Mosca from Boston. Sam Mosca is survived by his loving parents, Tina and Steve of Bass River, Massachusetts, his brothers, Ben and Andrew, his uncle and godfather, Chris Mosca, and his wife, Gina of Augusta, Maine, and cousins, Carlene, Raymond, Christiana, and, and Caroline, his aunt and godmother, Janine McGuire, and her husband, Tom, of Yarmouthport and Pompano Beach. He was predeceased by his loving grandparents, Tony and Nikki Mosca, and Larry and Jean Cusolito, great aunt Minnie Errico, Uncle Robbie Cusolito, and Aunt Mary Carlene Mosca. Sam lived a remarkable life. From a young age, he had a keen interest in the Chinese language. He ultimately became fluent in speaking, reading, and writing Mandarin. He graduated from Belmont High School and was named the nicest person in his class. He went on to the University of Toronto, graduating in 2014 with honors, majoring in philosophy and Eastern studies, and playing rugby. He earned a scholarship at Fudan University in Shanghai and was awarded a one-year fellowship to study in Beijing. He traveled extensively and made friends around the world, from Europe to Thailand and to the Himalayas, where he met with Tibetan lamas. As a global entrepreneur, he started up a technology company in Beijing, helped cancer patients in China receive life-saving treatment in the U.S., and live translated for a, or live translated, for a renowned Chinese artificial intelligence expert who presented seminars to bilingual audiences at Columbia, Harvard, and MIT. He most recently served as a senior software engineer for Fortune 500 co companies. Sam was a passionate person who cherished life, adventure, music, family, and doing kung fu on the bank of the Bass River. His flame burned brightly. Sam's legacy will be that of a young man with a boundless heart, a thousand-watt smile, and a kind and loving nature. Sam's positive energy and spirit will now and forever shine through us. Relatives and friends are invited to attend his funeral mass on Saturday, July 22nd, at St. Luke Parish, Belmont, at 10 a.m. Burial to follow at Mount Auburn Cemetery. Please vi visit devitofuneralhome.com to view an online guestbook. And that's D-E-V-I-T-O, funeral home, all one word. Our next obituary is for W. Allen Jackson, Jr., Centerville. W. Allen Jackson, Jr. of Centerville, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully at the age of 89 on Saturday, June, July 15, 2023. The eldest son of William Jackson and Helene Betty Mahoney Jackson, Allen grew up in Mansfield, Massachusetts with his siblings, the late Kevin Jackson, Bart Jackson, Mary Frances Jackson Brega, Larry Jackson, 
and the late Robert Bobby Jackson. He went on to attend Coyle High School, where he excelled on the baseball diamond and graduated in 1951. Allen then joined the U.S. Navy, where he served as a hospital corpsman. Following his active duty, he married Jean Bonifaci Jackson in 1956, and together they made their way to Cape Cod in 1959. On the Cape, Allen worked for H.P. Hood as a milkman for several years before returning to school for, to continue his education. He became a registered nurse and worked in the emergency room at Jordan Hospital, known today as Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. After retiring in 1997, Allen enjoyed the rest of his days spending time with his family and cheering on his beloved Boston Red Sox and New England Patriots. He is survived by his loving wife, Jean, daughter, Patricia Jackson Ames, granddaughter, Melissa Lichman, and grandson, Ryan Jackson. Services will be private. In lieu of flowers, donations in Allen's memory may be made to Elder Services of Cape Cod and the Islands, 68 Route 134, South Dennis, Massachusetts, 02660. And uh, the web address for that is escci.org slash donate. Or to Cape and Islands Veterans Outreach Center. And the website for that is capeveterans.com, Cape Veterans being one word, slash donation. And our final obituary today is for Jean Francis Colwell Miller, Orleans. Jean Francis Colwell Miller, 85, formerly of Orleans, Massachusetts, passed away on July 15, 2023, at Maplewood of Brewster, after a courageous battle with cancer. She was born May 7, 1938, to Frank and Jesse Klein Colwell in New Haven, Connecticut. She married and relocated to South Windsor, Connecticut, before moving to Glastonbury, Connecticut, and then to Orleans, where she and her husband spent a majority of their retirement. William Bill Miller predeceased her on May 16, 2023. Jean worked in secretarial positions over the years and was an active member of the St. Joan of Arc Church, volunteering many years in the thrift shop. She enjoyed, she enjoyed playing piano and violin, as well as reading, cooking, sewing, and walking the beach daily with Bill throughout their retirement. Jean is survived by her three children, Michael Miller of South Windsor, Connecticut, Christopher Miller and his wife Pamela of Brewster, Massachusetts, and Melinda and her husband Jeffrey Woods of Colchester, Connecticut. Jean cherished her grandchildren, Tanzia Hood and her husband Justin, Corwin Miller, Joshua and Aaron Woods, and Rebecca and Quinn Miller. She is also survived by her siblings, Kathy McClellan of New York, George Colwell and his wife Carol from Connecticut, Heather Lundgren and her husband Robert in Connecticut, and Rosetta Arnold and her husband Noel from, Arnold, uh, from New York, and many nephews and nieces. Visiting hours 
will be at Nickerson Funeral Home in Orleans, Massachusetts on July 28th from, no, from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m., followed by a service at St. Joan of Arc at 10 a.m. Internment will follow at the National Cemetery in Bourne at 1.30 p.m., where she will be laid to rest beside her husband. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to St. Joan of Arc, https colon slash slash www.joanarc.org, that's J-O-A-N-A-R-C dot org, or Continuing Hospice Das Massachusetts, and that website is https colon backslash backslash www.continuumhospice.com, and that's spelled C-O-N-T-I-N-U-U-M hospice.com. For online condolences, please visit https colon backslash backslash www.nickersonoforleans.com, and that's spelled N-I-C-K-E-R-S-O-N-F-H- O-R-L-E-A-N-S dot com. Here's a report from AP. It's entitled, Wesleyan University Becomes Latest School to End Legacy Admissions, and this is reported by Pat Eaton-Robb. Wesleyan University in Connecticut announced Wednesday that it has become the latest school to end its policy of giving preferential treatment in admissions to those whose families have historical ties to the school. Wesleyan President Michael Roth sent a letter to the university community saying that a student's legacy status has played a negligible role in admission but would now be eliminated entirely. Quote, we still value the ongoing relationships that come from multi-generational Wesleyan attendance, but there will be no bump in the selection process, he wrote. As has, has, has been almost always the case for a long time, Family members of alumni will be admitted on their own merits. Close quote. Legacy policies have been called into question after last month's Supreme Court ruling ban- banning affirmative action and any consideration of race in college admissions. The court's conservative majority effectively overturned cases reaching back 45 years, forcing institutions of higher education to seek new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. In recent years, several schools, including Amherst College in Massachusetts, Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania, and Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, have also eliminated legacy admissions. A civil rights complaint was recently filed against Harvard University over its legacy admissions policy. Lawyers for Civil Rights, a nonprofit based in Boston, which filed the complaint on behalf of black and Latino community groups in New England, argued in that complaint that students with legacy ties are up to seven times more likely to be admitted to Harvard, and they can make up nearly a third of a class, and and that about 70% are white. Quote, Harvard is on the wrong side of history, but can change this by joining Wesleyan and scores of other institutions in eliminating donor and legacy preferences voluntarily, the group said in a statement on Wednesday. 
In addition to ending legacy admissions, Roth said, Wesleyan, a liberal arts school with about 3,000 undergraduates, is also increasing efforts to ensure diversity in the student body. Among other things, he said the school will create scholarships for students from Africa, better develop a pipeline for veterans to apply to the school, enhance community college recruiting, and ensure the sustainment, sustainability of the school's degree program for prisoners. Quote, our admissions decision is based upon diverse facets of that individual's history, talent, potential to communicate to the university, and get the most out of a Wesleyan education, Roth wrote. Applicants' achievements and promise are carefully considered in the context of their respective schools, public engagement, and personal circumstances. We will continue to do all of this. And our last article from the Cape Cod Times is entitled, How Americans Are Coping with the Heat, reported by Grace Houck and Kayla Jimenez of USA Today. Taking shelter in cooling centers, flocking to community pools, cooking breakfast on the pavement, chilling in a walk-in refrigerator. America's, Americans across a broad part of the country are coping with lengthy and dangerous heat wave this week as cities shatter record high temperatures again and again. More than 100 million people across 15 states were under heat alerts Wednesday, and about 80 million, nearly a quarter of the population, were expected to see air temperature or the heat index above 105 degrees through the weekend, according to the National Weather Service. The longer the heat goes with record temperatures, the harder it is for people who are slowly demoralized over time, said Mark Hilbelink. Executive Director of Sunrise Homeless Navigation Center in Austin, Texas. We've just been trying to get water into the hands of people who need it and make sure people are safe. Many cities across the, con the country have opened cooling centers to provide shelter for people who are particularly vulnerable to the extreme weather, including seniors and people experiencing homelessness. At a cooling center in Austin, Volunteers have been passing out bandanas soaked in ice water. The center typically sees 300 to 400 people a day and deploys mobile teams that provide water, hats, and sunscreen, Hillblink said. When there's extreme weather events, we do see a surge of people. More record-breaking heat is expected in the Four Corners states, Texas to the lower Mississippi Valley and South Florida, and overnight temperatures aren't expected to provide much relief, the National Weather Service said. Heat will reach levels that will pose a health risk. Heat that will reach levels that would pose a house risk, health risk could be deadly to anyone without cooling or hydration, the Weather, weather Service warned. There have already been a number of heat-related injuries in recent weeks. Adding to the misery, smoke from Canadian wildfires triggered air quality alerts from the plains to, to the Midwest to the East Coast this week. At least 12 heat-associated deaths were reported in Maricopa County, Arizona, in the first week of July, according to the county's Department of Public Health. 
Most recently, a 73-year-old man who went for a bike ride died from what appeared to be heat-related causes in a desert Sunday, according to the police in Buckeye, outside of Phoenix. We are saddened by the loss of a community member, the Buckeye Police Department said in a statement. Please be safe in this extreme heat. On Tuesday, Phoenix marked its 19th consecutive day of high temperatures at or above 110 degrees. In Arizona, a network of cooling stations offered cold water bottles and air-conditioned spaces to help people avoid heat exhaustion and dehydrated. People seeking shelter, quote, can come in, cool down, sleep, and make sure they stay hydrated, said Rudy Solitz, director of operations at Eusta Center in Phoenix. The center focuses services on seniors facing homelessness, but is open to anyone when temperatures surpass 100 degrees. Joyce Obiro, who has been homeless since 2016, says she has been returning to the center daily to avoid time out in the heat. She suffered from heat stroke last summer and spent a couple of months in the hospital. Quote, it's been a lifesaver, Obira said. And that's it for the news today. This is Daphne, and I've been reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, July the 20th. I hope that uh, your weekend is cool and safe and that you enjoy your days.